Hello, everyone. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Pauly. And today on the show, Playing Scared, a history and memoir of stage fright. Sarah Solovich grew up playing the piano, a serious student and aspiring performer. At times, she says, her playing defined her. But nevertheless, she quit the instrument altogether in her late teens. She swore it off because of a really nasty case of stage fright. It had made every competition and concert a queasy, sweat-soaked descent into terror, and it just became unbearable. Sarah did go on to a successful career as a journalist and writer, but there was always a sense of some unfinished business there with the piano. And finally, 30 years after she'd given it up, she began playing again, privately and tentatively at first, but with a growing resolve to face the old fears, to see if she could understand the source of her performance anxiety, and maybe even brave the concert stage again. The story of how she did that And the broader story of stage fright, its psychology, physiology, its sufferers, and their methods for coping with it is the subject of her new book, and also the subject of today's interview. Stay tuned. Sarah, when you look at the cover of your book, Playing Scared, A History and Memoir of Stage Fright, there's a picture on it. Mm -hmm. It's you, just shy of two years old. Yeah. Seated at a piano bench with one of those old-fashioned baby dresses and a bonnet, (laughs) your feet dangling maybe a foot off the floor, and your tiny hands extended to the keyboard. What do you you see? What do you feel? I see my family's pride and dreams in me. This was my aunt's piano. It's her Steinway Grand Piano that I later practiced on every day. And... um, It almost looks like I was dressed up for the Easter parade. And I know I wasn't going to the Easter parade, but it just seems like such an iconic picture. And there's also something of a deer-in-the-headlights kind of look, a kind of a stunned look. Like, what do these people want of me? Knowing what I know now, having read the book, it's a really poignant picture because I see a kid shouldering some hope and dreams of her family, too. That's an awful lot for a a one-and-a-half-year-old. You know, it's funny because I'm the oldest of three children, but I had a sister before me who died, you know, years before I met her. And my mother was 40 when she had me. And I was the only child in her entire family of three sisters. I was the first one. And so there were a lot of hopes and dreams for me. I came along fairly late in everybody's life. And so the expectations were very high. And they were also, even though they were born in the U.S., they were very much an immigrant family. Their parents were born in Russia. I think they grew up all speaking Russian and Yiddish. And um, they brought a lot of that fervor and high dreams for their children. You didn't yet play piano at that Oh, God, no. But you were posed at the piano. And there were several pictures in which I was posed. This was just one of several. You were being groomed. You have to say that looking at this picture. There's really no other explanation, is there? And classical music, let's face it, is one of those channels for climbing socially, right? You get a kid who's a concert pianist or a great violinist or a conductor, and your family has made it in America or in Europe. Uh, You know, you... 
I say you collectively, a group of Jewish immigrants or Asian immigrants, you know, this is a ticket to another class, another life. And it still is. Do you know 130 million Chinese children take piano lessons? Wow. Yeah. This is considered the way out, the way out of obscurity, you know, the way out of poverty and acclaim. So you did take up piano, seriously. Mm -hmm. Not just playing it and not just learning it, but competing at it. Your mom entered you in a lot of competitions? Yeah, I started playing the piano when I was seven years old. And I can actually remember the exact moment when the piano entered the house. My aunt had come down from the States and went to the Heinzman Warehouse in Toronto. And Heinzman was the piano of Canada. And she spent a day playing all the pianos and deciding which one little Sarah was going to have, which one, you know, would fit into our house, which was a much more modest place than her house. And when it arrived, you know, the piano guys brought the piano up. My mother was standing in the doorway and holding it open. And I remember coming by with a friend and looking at it curiously and then announcing that I was going out to play. My mother was furious at me that I would leave the house at such a moment. <laughs> so, the, the yeah, the cards were really laid out on the table right then. How did you cope with that much pressure? I'm not sure I really thought of it as pressure. I never even imagined that I had a choice in the matter. And I probably didn't start the competitions till I was 10 or 11. And even as I started crashing and burning at these competitions, it never occurred to me that I could actually say no. Um, for, for <laughs> You're wincing. I am wincing because, I mean, I mean, I totally identify with you. I wasn't a musician, but I am someone who's uh, who takes, you know, sort of familial expectations and societal expectations really seriously and being forced back to the stage when you, as you say, you crash and burn. And this is crash and burn because of nervousness and stage mm, Oh, break. totally. So you melted down. Oh, my symptoms were so physical. I just feel so sorry thinking back to that little girl. I mean, the worst symptoms of all were that my hands just became totally wet with sweat. It just felt like water was pouring off them so that when I sat down to play, my hands and fingers would just slide and slip, you know, along the keyboard and there was really no control. And my knees would be knocking and my feet couldn't control the pedals because they were shaking so much. And of course, my fingers, in addition to being wet, were also shaking, you know, trembling. And people could see that. Um, and so, yeah, and then I'd lose my memory you know, because I'd be playing, you know, by heart for a lot of these pieces. And it was a competition. So there was always a judge who was taking notes and scratching on a little piece of paper. It was quite intimidating. An ordeal. Mm. And there's, you know, this humiliation or embarrassment in front of a bunch of people. And then the memory of it. It's not something you forget real quickly. No. And then when you return to do it, Again and again, what happens is in your cells, if not consciously, you take that memory of your last experience into the next one. And so it becomes a feedback loop. And then the adrenaline starts to pour into you, remembering the bad experience. And one thing just leads to another, and it's a cascade of events. 
So I think it was at 19 that you said no more. Yeah. You entered and uh, finished your last competition ever. Well, it wasn't even a competition at that point. When I was 16 years old, we moved to upstate New York to actually live with my aunt. And um, one of the perks that I was told it was one of the perks was that I would be going to Eastman School of Music. And my teacher at Eastman was the adjudicator at one of my last competitions. Probably not the last, but one of my last major competitions. And the first thing he said to me when I walked into his studio was, there will be no more competitions. He was a very kind and understanding person. I did continue playing in recitals and in his studio for teachers who would, you know, visit from the Rochester area, you know, come in to see what people at Eastman were doing, but I didn't compete in any formal way anymore. But you gave your last performance at 19. Yes. And walked away. Mm -hmm. And became a writer. More or less, yeah. (laughs) Happened pretty quickly. A lot of people are afraid of writing, and for them, the page is the stage. Mm -hmm. Yes. Not you? Absolutely. No. I love the adrenaline rush of being on deadline. I always rise to the occasion. I've never missed a deadline. I feel, you know, thrilled and exhausted by it and occasionally terrified, but I always am able to summon up my reserve. I'm able to focus and channel that adrenaline just as I'm supposed to be doing at the piano, but I can take it to the page and do it there. Is it possible that your feeling of having washed out or failed at piano made you all the more determined and and successful at the other thing, writing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think writing just always was so much more natural to me, Mm. even from the time I was a child. That sounds like your real vocation, your real calling, but piano meant a lot to you. And even during those decades when you didn't touch the piano at all, Mm -hmm. uh, it was still there in your mind. Yeah, 30 years. What was it for you? Well, in some way... I mean, I think I really whited out a big part of my life. And yet there was this kind of memory. There was this intrinsic thing at the back of my mind that music was a very important part of my life. So that, you know, when I graduated college, my aunt had given me a piano as a graduation gift. And I schlepped that piano with me everywhere I went. And I really, I moved a lot those first, I don't know, probably 10 years after college. I lived in, you know, Brooklyn and the Berkshires and Buffalo, New York and Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia and then moved out here. And and a lot of times they were, you know, third floor walk-ups. I couldn't even imagine not bringing it with me. And it always had pride of place, of course. But... You know, oftentimes in some of those locations, I don't think I ever touched it. So instead of an elephant in the room, there was a... The piano in the room. (laughs) Wow. It's a lot of work to uh, move a piano, and you did it even though you weren't playing. I'm assuming you stayed close to music, though. You listened. Oh, yeah. You have a husband who's a music critic. Yeah. You have kids, who, two of whom are now professional musicians, Mm -hmm. two of your sons. Yeah. So music was still huge. Oh, huge, yeah. Was there uh, a feeling, though, of pain, of loss, whenever you listened to someone performing? I think there were times I thought to myself, I wish I could do that. But it wasn't sort of an open wound for you, the, the fact that you once were a pianist and you weren't anymore. 
Well, it was something I didn't like to talk about. I didn't like telling people. When I would meet musicians in particular, I, I would not ever tell them. Hmm. Well, what got you back into playing the piano was a request from your son? This was my youngest son, Jesse, who played the clarinet. He was starting to get interested in jazz, and he wanted me to improvise with him and accompany him. And I had never played jazz. I'd been a very rigorously trained classical pianist and just played exactly what was on the page. So I finally called a friend of mine here in town, and I asked him if he would just help me. He, I, you know, he was a good pianist. He played both classical and jazz. So I figured he'd be a good kind of bridge to showing me, you know, some progressions and what I should do. And I figured it was just, you know, something I would have a couple lessons at and it wouldn't, it wouldn't go very far. And so he said to me, well, sure, but you haven't played the piano in what, 30 years? Let's just take a couple weeks and get your hands back into shape and play some Bach and play some Mozart and see where we're going from there. And so I began, you know, working on some Bach piece and some Mozart. And at that point, I just fell totally back in love with music in a way that I think I just had ignored, especially for, for my own self you know, in playing. And I never went to jazz. I never accompanied <laughs> my son, Jesse, in jazz. But you fell back in love. So there had been love along with the terror and the trauma. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I would have stayed with it, you know, all those years earlier if I hadn't always had a great love for it. I mm. did. Mm. Along with the love, though, uh, did the demons come back right away? What I recognized was that my hands were no longer you know, up to snuff. I wasn't able to play, you know, nearly at the level that I had as a youth. But my stage fright was really intact. It was like I had put it in a box with a lot of newspapers wrapped around it and kept it really careful and put it aside in a basement or someplace. And now I had taken it out after 30 years and looked at it. And it was as strong as ever, and maybe more so. It was in perfect condition. Preserved. Yeah, preserved for all time. So you began playing again, but just in the kind of safe, private way that worked for you, right? Mm -hmm. By yourself, maybe a little bit with your family members hearing it, and a, a local teacher who was getting you back into shape. But it sounds like the specter of performance was still hovering over all of this. How come? I mean, you could have said, ah. I'll just never perform, you know? I love the music. I can keep doing this in this way. Oh, I think that's exactly what I would have done, except for a couple things. Maybe the the most critical was a party that I went to, an office party that my husband took me to. And here he was, the music critic. And he was probably, I imagine, going to the office and bragging about me and, you know, how his wife was playing such wonderful music. <laughs> and so we get to this, you know, office party, and there was a piano in, in the room. And the host asked if I would play something. And everybody else at the party, you know, started clamoring, yeah, play something, play something. And as I write in the book, what I heard was, jump, jump, jump. And it was, I just refused, but it just didn't end there. He kept asking, and I kept refusing. And it became so 
painful to everybody how afraid I was. And I think to my husband, too, that even as we drove home that evening, I felt embarrassed. (laughs) Wow, I I feel protective of you. Why was everybody getting on your case? Why not respect that? Yeah, I know. How (laughs) dare they? (laughs) But it did did set something in motion, so maybe I should be grateful to them. Mm. I'm guessing they didn't really sense how completely incapacitating the level of stage fright that you experienced was. No, of if course. I mean, I didn't say to them, yeah. I'm too afraid. I just said, oh, no, no, thank you, uh, and just kept saying, no, no, no. Oh, they thought you were just being coy or something. Probably. Yeah, okay. I mean, I didn't want to come out and say, you know, I'm, I'm scared of you. <laughs> well, you ended up doing what a lot of um, journalists and writers do, is to take whatever that burning issue is <laughs> and make it a book project. And uh, you set yourself a goal. Well, I guess what I'd like to say just to back up a bit on that, is that, you know, when I first thought of the idea, I thought, this is a fabulous idea. This is, you know, intellectually really exciting. And I could just use my passion for the piano and my discipline of writing. These are the two things that I really care most about in my entire life, bar my family, and merge them and use this incredible time to explore myself and go deeper and deeper into my music and find out really, you know, what kind of just brought me up to this point. And I realized that intellectually, it was a very exciting project. But of course, emotionally, it terrified me. And even at that point, I then thought, well, whenever there's something that's really uncomfortable and unnerving, that's what you want to write about. Well, you know, I can see you're undertaking an exploration of your stage fright, talking to experts, talking to fellow sufferers, finding out about it, researching it, as you ended up doing. But you upped the ante by declaring at some point in this process that it would all come to a head in a concert that you would give where you would really confront, <laughs> you know, the abyss and uh, step out in front of a bunch of people and play the piano, something that was just like mm-hmm. the most horrible thing you could contemplate. And that would add drama to the book, of course. It would create a narrative arc. It would create a narrative arc, <laughs> but you were taking a huge risk. Yes, I was. Because what if I really screwed up and I would have to, you know, just admit that? I mean, there was the, you know, not so little fact of not knowing what was going to happen, right? Well, let's suppose the day came after you've researched it and you've done all the preparatory work and you step out there and, again, the sweat pours off your hands, the muscles tighten up, you start forgetting passages, and you just blow it. What's really at stake there, Sarah? Well, that's interesting. You know, Rollo May, the existential psychologist, once said that anxiety is the threat that every individual has of the value to the individual that most um, questions their existence, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, the, the value of my existence was really my mother's love in some really deep way. You know, I'd always sought my mother's love. I'd always adored my mother, despite all of this. I mean, I had a wonderful relationship with my mother. Now, she was long gone by the time I gave this recital, but in some way she was really with me every step of the way. 
Was it an issue for her that you had uh, quit the piano at 19? Oh, I think she was quite heartbroken. Hmm. You know, she's told me that I was giving up the best part of myself. Whoa. Yeah. Again with the heavy burden there. Wow. Yeah. A lot of parents of classical musicians are like that. I worked for months with a performance coach at Juilliard, a really wonderful guy named Noah Kageyama, who was a violinist and a psychologist. And he began violin lessons when he was two or three years old. His mother read a book by Suzuki, you know, the Suzuki method, in which Suzuki said that practicing an instrument was just like eating. We don't just eat one meal an, you know, a day and then go a couple days without it. We eat every day. And just so in music, you have to practice every day. Well, Kageyama's mother interpreted this to mean that if, his, if her son didn't practice, he didn't eat. And there was at least one time when he didn't eat. And by the way, that's not anywhere near the most extreme version of parental overreach in your book. There is no. the story of, you can pronounce her name better than I can. Slenshenska. Yes. Madam Ruth. Uh, you call her the most famous child prodigy or musical child prodigy of the 20th century? Yes, I believe so. She was someone who was indeed a prodigy. I think you say Rachmaninoff himself said she was the most talented pianist he'd ever seen. Yes. When she was a kid. Yes. But her father was Oh, he was, was a horror. Yeah, he was really an abuser. He beat her. Yeah threw things at her? Yes. Once when she asked him what would happen, I think she was six years old. She was about to give her first solo recital at Mills College, by the way. Mm. And um, she asked him what would happen if she made a mistake or she forgot something in her music. And he went to the kitchen and he brought back a couple tomatoes and he threw them at her. And he said, this is what will happen. People will throw tomatoes at you. And not surprisingly, what became of her career? Oh, she had kind of a meltdown herself when she was in her late teens or early 20s. And she left the piano. She ran away from home. I don't think she ever saw her father again. She had a kind of an ill-advised marriage. She eloped. And um, her husband then sent her out on the concert tour. And she had to support him for some period of time until finally... She left him as well. Did you see the movie Whiplash? No, I heard about it. My husband saw it and was telling me about it. You know the story, though. Not really. Okay. Go ahead. So it was a hit movie this past year, and it's a story of a young aspiring jazz drummer who goes off to a jazz conservatory and encounters a charismatic and much admired band leader slash teacher who's also a sadistic abuser. Beats him, I mean slaps him, insults him, etc., and drives him to greater heights of performance by so doing. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess I can editorialize a bit. I don't know of any single jazz musician I've ever met, and I've known a lot, who would have stood for that abuse, you know? They tend to be pretty independent That's sorts. right, and the music That's tends to be That's more of the classical mode. Indeed, it is. It seemed yes. like a complete misrepresentation of jazz education. But it does apply to some classical masters, Um my only experience with anything similar was a ballet teacher, and I just took ballet just to find out what it was all about. I had no aspirations, but she ended up insulting me in front of the class, which I was told I was told was a sign that she thought I had potential. <laughs> <laughs> but I walked out. I was not going to take that. 
<laughs> Still, what do you? What is this craziness, though? I mean, here I am inserting my own opinion. An art form. It's supposed to be an act of love and sensitivity and personal expression getting mixed up with, mm-hmm. as you say, abuse, with ideas of of um, of conquest, of competition, of being better than other people, judgment. I mean, this is weird, isn't it? Yes. And a real appetite for criticism. Yes. That you are going to be taken down and accept it. And this really is the way I think that classical music and dance has been taught for for generations. I think that's starting to change now, but I have heard it over and over again. And to the extent that even when musicians, like students, suffer some kind of injury, they don't come to their teachers and tell them. That's something that they keep to themselves. Nobody really admits to it. They also don't admit to stage fright because it's something that you know, if you are considered really good and talented, you just suck it up. And part of the performance is, and and the quality of the performance means getting beyond it. So people don't admit to these things. It is a real taboo. I can think of no better recipe for stage fright than all the things we've been talking about in, in those teaching methods. But you're reminding me of the um, a great story. You should tell this one. The Oneida... Perfectionist. Oh, the perfectionist. Let me see if I can remember that one. This was a, um, a kind of a utopian a perfectionist community slash yes, cult. Yes, in upstate New York, as in, as it was. In yeah. the 1840s. Yes. And it was developed by a New Englander by the name, I think, Noise. In a, yeah, in a John line. Humphrey yes, John Noise. Noise. Yeah. The whole idea of it was that you would criticize other people and you, and you would cure them of actual diseases by criticizing them. It was called the criticism cure. And so you would walk into a person's sick room and actually criticize their personality, any part about them that you didn't like in some way, and that that would make them a better person for it and they would manage to overcome their disease then. Really, like huge physical ailments. And this little experiment didn't work out too well. No. One of the interesting things about it, though, was that it encouraged free love. It was one of the free love, you know, early communes and utopian communes that existed in this country. I imagine there was a lot of uh, performance anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) A different kind of performance anxiety. Oh, man. It sounds like satire, but it really happened, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and they, the government came in and kind of closed it down, and John Humphrey Noyes fled to Canada, and everybody else just kind of found their their long-term partners and returned to monogamy. And it became a silverware um, company called the Oneida, or, yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced, Oneida Silverware. Yeah, uh, speaking of uh, performance anxiety and the relationship between sex and uh, music, you have a great quote here. Contemporary culture presupposes performance, a put-up-or-shut-up mindset in which virtually every activity, from the most banal to the most intimate, is photographed, documented, videotaped, and evaluated. And I would put the emphasis on that last word. Evaluated, We're always ranking. We're always ranking, you know. We take that not just to sports, where it is about winning, but even things like music, where it shouldn't be about winning, right? 
Um, and then you go on to say, regardless of whether the anxiety strikes in the penis or piano, the same rule applies. You have to be in control of your instrument. <laughs> yeah. There is kind of, I mean, in modern America, you know, there is kind of a obsession with winning and avoiding losing at all costs and taking that idea to almost every arena. Right. I mean, I think even parenting has become a kind of performance these days. It's, you know, how well your children perform in school and then what colleges do they get in and how that reflects on you as a parent. You know, you're somehow you've won the lottery if your child gets into a good school and it doesn't matter whether they really are happy there or not. But it's almost as if parenting ends there, it ends with the achievement of, you know, the, the acceptance letter. Your book made me think a lot about that word performance and what performance represents in music, in classical music, which is different from some of the other forms, right? I mean, rock or, you know, hip hop or pop. Or even jazz, for instance. Or even jazz. I mean, you make a mistake in jazz and it becomes an excuse to riff about something else. It develops into a whole other arc in the music and it becomes something that's really fun and freeing. Well, yeah. And you think about most of the, the real greats, the real revolutionaries were all making mistakes relative to whatever came before. Look at Thelonious Monk. He's exactly Ooh, the, the guy I was going to say. My favorite. Or, or, or Coltrane was criticized a lot. What's that guy doing? That's insane. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it's true. Dave, Miles Davis, almost all the greats were, were breaking the rules and, and uh, making, quote, mistakes. But classical music is really different. You talk to a lot of musicians and a lot of teachers and uh, a lot of authorities, um, some really great people, and I really enjoyed reading what they had to say. One of them was uh, Gwendolyn Mock, a well-known pianist, uh, teaches at San Jose State University, uh, especially known for her, uh, her uh, performances of Ravel and her Ravel recordings. But she said some interesting things about perfection. To yes, that perfection is absolutely boring. A computer can actually perform, you know, the, the Debussy perfectly, if that's what I was going for. And what we instead have to strive for is excellence and mastery, but not perfection. Yeah, it makes me wonder what kind of an art could be rated against perfection. Perfection, I mean, the word derives from uh, the Latin, I believe, for finish, done, over, complete, right? Yeah. No more to be done with it. Dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and again, how would you say uh, of a of a painting or of a lot of other kinds of art that's perfect? I mean, you could say it's great, it's wonderful, but I mean, there's no, you can't simply check off boxes and say, oh yeah, it hit all of them and that's perfect. Mm -hmm. Again, I want to ask, how did an art form like classical get this way? And it wasn't always this way. As I understand it. And they're right. It certainly wasn't like that in the Baroque times when you weren't expected to stick so closely to the page. You know, for instance, when, you know, Bach was alive, it's just somehow, you know, developed a real rigor that became so demanding of the finished moment that it becomes, I think, quite stultifying sometimes. You know, I know that I've gone to concerts where every note was perfect, and yet I left feeling very unsatisfied, you know, almost, you know, bored during it. It doesn't make for wonderful music, necessarily. Now, you go to uh, the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. Yeah. Do you remember 2010? 
the composer, well-known, very accomplished composer, Kevin Putz. Oh, yeah. Performed one of his own concertos. Did I write about that? Oh, you didn't write I about it in the book? I don't think I wrote about it. Um, but he's a... He's, I remember that well. He wanted to be a concert pianist, or at least he played piano seriously when he was young, but went to Eastman and decided composition was his game. But he ended up writing this very difficult, challenging uh, concerto called Night for a virtuoso uh, pianist named uh, Jeffrey Kahane. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then Kevin decided to perform it on his own. Yes. You know, dust off the old ivories, you know, get back into the game. And he played it with the orchestra. We were both there. We saw it. And um, I've talked to him about this on the show, by the way. Mm -hmm. He he has a very good attitude about this. (laughs) But he launched into his concerto and was doing great. And then in the third movement, he sort of blanked and stopped. And he had to back up. There was a moment of hesitation, backed up to wherever he'd lost track, started again, the orchestra kicked in again, and finished it wonderfully. And honestly, I have to say, that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen (laughs) in a classical performance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because John Beebe, who's a Jungian psychologist, said something very similar to me about perfectionism. What he said was that when you present yourself honestly, it's hard for someone to knock you off because you never pretended in the first place to be perfect. And the example that he cited specifically was Liza Minnelli. And he looked at this concert that she had given at the Albert Hall in London, in which she did something very similar. She was singing, um, you know, her um, her signature song, New York, New York, right? And she got halfway through and she decided there was something she didn't like about it. She was, you know, missing notes and the intonation wasn't quite right. And she stopped. And she said something to the pianist. You couldn't really tell what was being said between them, but the pianist clearly wasn't happy with her. And then they backed up and started again. And the crowd went crazy because they saw the genuineness and the acceptance that she had for herself, that this recognition that she was this aging voice, that she wasn't singing as she wanted to and that she was reaching for something else and even when she went back and did it a second time it wasn't perfect but there was this recognition of integrity and John Beebe was really taken by that because he said that one of the things that had always bothered him about Liza Minnelli in the past when she was young was that there was something a little too perfect about her and he didn't like that this is what he really appreciated much more. It's funny because it kind of recapitulates some of her mom's performances. Doesn't it? Yeah. 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 But what is it that we, we, the public, want from a performer? I mean, there are lots of ways to listen to music. We could go listen to great renditions on record. That's the way Glenn Gould preferred it, right? He'd rather... That zero to one audience (laughs) ratio. Yeah, Yeah. he wanted one performer, zero audience. He liked recording better than he liked performing on the stage. So we could get our music fixed that way. But we obviously clamor to go see people on stage in front of us in the lights. What do you think we look for? What do we want from a performer? You know, I think of something that my son's violin teacher said to him when he first started taking lessons with her, and that's Mary Lou Galen, who I really came to admire greatly. And she said to him, when you practice, you practice as a cold-blooded scientist. 
when you perform, you play for yourself and for God. And I think we look for that. We're looking for some kind of religious experience. Mm. You know, we're looking to be transcended and taken somewhere very differently. Otherwise, we can just stay home and listen to it. And, you know, increasingly, we do that. It's, it's hard to get people out to go to a concert. And so just to hear something perfect just isn't really satisfying. We want that transcendent moment. Yeah. And uh depends on what your religion is, but Religion is full of martyrs, too, and sometimes it seems like we want that from a performer. We want them to leave it all on the stage. I see so much in common between religion and music. You know, I was probably in my 40s before I realized that the word practice meant anything besides sitting down at the piano and working, that it could be applied to sitting meditation or you practice a religion I, it kind of blew me, me away. I mean, of course, I'd probably said it. But to really think of what that word meant and how widely it could be applied and that it really didn't just mean practicing the piano, it was kind of revelatory for me. And it also struck me as very interesting. My sister, she was bat mitzvahed in her 40s, I think. And she told me that when someone chants Torah, if they don't sing and chant it exactly right and pronounce every word correctly, then the community is actually obliged. It's duty-bound to interrupt that person and say and correct them and say no. And then it, they, the person has to back up and sing it you know, with the right chant and pronounce the word absolutely as written. I mean, that's like classical music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. high expectation of, per, you know, perfection. And the fact that you're carrying your community, you are expected to perform for them. Um, you practiced a lot of things in your journey, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, through, I had a whole toolbox full through, of t- you try, things. You try all kinds of stuff. I mean, uh, you make no uh, secret of the fact that you've taken and probably will continue to take beta blockers, mm-hmm. the the drugs that decrease our sensitivity to adrenaline and therefore keep us at least physiologically calmer when we're in stressful situations, right? Yes. A lot of musicians take them. They're legal. Doctors will prescribe them. And they seem to help people. Definitely. Um, and they help you. Yes. Not with everything, just the physical part of your stage fright. Yes. They remove... The physical symptoms. So my hands don't get wet. You know, my fingers don't shake. I don't tremble. I'm not, my heart isn't pounding, at least not as much. I'm sure that there is some, there's some adrenaline that's getting through because I feel like I'm still always very excited and I bring, you know, some nervous tension to it. What happens is that I still then have to control the thoughts in my mind. I have to remain completely focused. And that is a challenge for me always. So in addition to uh, popping those little orange pills, you've tried biofeedback. You went to a lot of psychologists who are mm-hmm. experts in stage fright. You did yoga. You did what you'd call centering. Yes. Um, so I know people <laughs> are going to want to know, what works? The most important thing was doing it, you know, to actually force myself out and perform. 
in every kind of capacity, because that was what I had been running away from all my life. So playing for people, especially going to the airport in San Jose, became kind of my personal version of exposure therapy, which is all about doing the thing that's, you know, hardest for you over and over again. That was instrumental, (laughs) to make a little pun. (laughs) And you know, I want to jump in and say, we have a little recording that I asked of you, you playing at Mineta San Jose Airport. Mm -hmm. This was the brilliant idea of one of your teachers, Ellen... Ellen Chen. Ellen Chen. Yeah. said, Sarah, you know, here's a place where you can play where, you know, you'll be lost in the kind of hubbub of the airport... As people come and go, people aren't going to be standing around staring at you and evaluating you, but you can still play in public. The idea was to practice performing. Practice performing in public without Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure. And, you know, all musicians do this. They'll go and play, like before doing a major performance somewhere at a concert hall, they'll go and play 20 times in people's living rooms and, you know, just take their repertoire and play over and over again until they have it nailed. Well, let's hear a little bit of this recording. You at uh, Manetta San Jose Airport. And this is, I guess, a, a Bach prelude that you're yes. playing here. And you can, hear the, you can hear some of the footsteps and some of the other noise of the airport. It's not particularly noisy. This is a, one of the quieter moments, I guess. No loudspeaker announcements. And I think it was a Sunday afternoon. Sunday. But this is you working away. What effect did that have on you? It was liberating. Nobody was listening to me. Nobody was judging me. Most people who walked by didn't even glance at me. It was like I was invisible. And that was wonderful. You've got me wondering if I was among the many passers-by who didn't pay you, pay you any notice. <laughs> God, there was that very um, famous story of Joshua Bell, who was performing the Metro led, uh, in Washington. Yeah, in yeah. Washington. Yeah. He was playing Bach, and no most one paid people any attention. never paid him any <laughs> attention. Well, that was an inspired stroke on the part of, uh, of Ellen Chen. Um, how far along that path did that get you to being able to perform without a lot of anxiety? Well, probably by the fifth time I did it, I no longer really needed a beta blocker to go to the airport. It just became something that was routine and a little boring. And I just, you know, would go through my pieces. And if I made a mistake, it was, you know, so what? So that got me quite far. Then I started inviting people over to my house for these little soirees, I called them. And I was having groups of about 10 people come by and I would play a couple pieces for them and inevitably I would just get really nervous and I'd flub it and they would always say to me play it again you know like you're you're just nervous play it. and and the second time or the third time I would just start to relax and it became less nervous making so that was also very useful and then I went to a music camp in Vermont the Sonata Camp, and it famously has a piano in every room. And um, that was 10 days of intense instruction and master classes and performances, recitals. And that was also something, you know, I was nervous. I was really nervous the first time I went, but it, it also helped to, 
you know, kind of ease and see that other people were just as nervous as me. And I was able to ease into it. Yeah. That's something I wanted to ask. You know, in a lot of um, 12-step programs, for example, part of the treatment, the therapy is meeting and helping others who have exactly the same problem. And you met a lot of people who have the problem. Mm-hmm. Did that help you to meet others who just said, you know, yeah, you're not alone. There's just tons of other people who have this problem, including some super famous ones. Amazing stories yeah, here. it doesn't help me in the moment uh-huh. when I'm playing for people or about to play because I just totally forget that. And I think I my brain just goes into, you know, kind of the reptilian part of it. And I'm no longer, you know, so rational. Certainly the beta blocker helps with some of that. But I'm just trying so hard to kind of keep it focused and stay rational and maintain my breath. So I don't really think about anybody else. I do have that sense of you know, in the, the Jungian um, way of looking at things, of being outside the herd, you know, being just kind of cast aside in this archetypal way of being, you know, the zebra on the savanna, like Robert Sapolsky, the Stanford neurologist always talks about, you know, and running for my life. And, you know, the zebra, he said, would like kind of just be really puzzled if he thought that the same you know, symptoms that are causing the zebras so much anguish are also affecting somebody like me who just has to sit down at the piano and play a song. That's true. You're doing, you give a solo concert. You are isolated. You are alone. The herd's there, <laughs> but they're surrounding you. The, li- the lions are there. <laughs> the <lions are> there. <laughs> the but predators. Al- but, but also there is a kind of sense that if you fail, you might risk expulsion. You know, I mean, like in classical music, you fail, you might be expelled from the elite. You well, you're not... holding yourself up in some yeah. way to say, you know, you get up on stage, whether you're a pianist or a public speaker or an actor, and you're saying, look at me, look what I can do. Mm-hmm. When, when you fail, people are a little you know, infuriated, I, you know, and I can understand it because I've been on the other side, you know, it's like... Why did you say, why did you hold yourself up to this if you can't do it? Yeah, it's true. Why did you charge us money? Why did you call attention to yourself? Uh, Why are you wasting our time? Oh, not just that, but if if the audience is like embarrassing us. Exactly, because I identify with the performer. And and if things start to go south. It's painful. uh, It's painful to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to rescue them, get them out of there. Or run away yourself. <laughs> run away. No, I can't stand it. It's true. There's such a strange, complicated psychology in performances. Um, you tell some amazing stories about really famous people. I, I didn't know nearly so many had terrible, you know, lifelong stage fright, or at least long periods of it. Vladimir Horowitz, one of the greatest concert pianists ever, had to be dragged, in some cases, by burly men onto the stage. I know. Pulled out of his green room and kicking and screaming and then throwing on the stage. And Laurence Olivier, same thing. Not a musician, but, you know, acting yeah. is similar on mm-hmm. stage. Um, Pablo Casals, you tell a great story about him, uh, that he was in the uh, Bay Area for a concert and uh, hiked Mount Tamalpais, and a, uh, a rock fell and crushed his hand, and he said, thank God I'll never have to play cello again. <laughs> <laughs> there is a love-hate relationship, you know, with music. Did you ever see that movie Jackie and Hillary? Yes. And, and Jackie, is, the, you the know, world-famous cellist, Jackie is Dupre. on tour. Jackie yes, Dupre. Jacqueline Dupre. Jacqueline Dupre. She's on tour in Russia, and it's a very successful tour. And she's staying in this really lovely hotel. 
And at night, she drags her cello out on the balcony where it's snowing. And then she walks back inside and closes the doors and leaves it there. Yeah. Well, the big moment did come for you uh, when you were expected to give uh, a performance. And you had set the date years in advance, and you stuck to it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have a recording of that, but we have a recording of actually another moment of truth, another big climactic moment in this storyline, which is a recital you gave not long before that. Right, it was a month a, before a at month the before library. At the Santa Cruz, Santa Public, Cruz library. Public Library. And uh, this was a big step for you, too. This was like something that was public. It was announced. People were going to come and see you play. And you, I think, very smart move on your part. You started off with a duet, so you weren't completely alone, right, with your right. son, Max, mm-hmm. who is a violinist. You guys played together a Haydn sonata. Yes. You were essentially an accompanist. Yes. So you kind of eased into it. Mm-hmm. How was that? That was really wonderful. He He's just a very sensitive player, and he listens very carefully. And so he was listening to me, and I think he was just very aware of my nervousness, as I should have been listening to him. And he covered for you at one point. Yeah. Because yeah. you missed a... I missed... I, I think I skipped a measure. Uh-huh. And he instantly recognized it. I'm not sure how he knew it so quickly, but he immediately jumped ahead. But then the moment came when you had to step out and be all alone on the stage, even though this was not a high-pressure concert-going audience. Right. But still, a lot of pressure compared to anonymous playing in the San Jose airport. Oh, yeah. All eyes are on you, and some of them are trained eyes. Um, So we do have a recording, thanks to your husband, uh, Rich Shannon, Mm -hmm. who took his iPad. And... uh, you can hear some foreground noise here and stuff because iPads aren't the perfect recording instrument, but we can still hear you play pretty well. We're going to hear the first piece you played solo at this coming out recital, right? The WC. This is WC. Reflet on low. Okay.
tell me what you hear now, what you felt then. What I hear is that I'm able to get some of what I'm trying so hard to achieve at the piano. And oftentimes the subtleties just fly out the window when I'm in a concert or, you know, a public setting. It's not as soft in places as I want it to be. I'm not able to just bring all the subtleties of the music to the fore. And sometimes I hear a little, you know, like a tightness in my playing that bothers me. And it's not relaxed. You know, it's not just totally relaxed. And that's something that I'm very aware of afterwards in, in listening to it. Are you being tough on yourself? Sure. <laughs> you know, because I'm reaching for the stars in, in what I'm doing. It's, you know, that kind of Yatesian fascination with what's difficult. I tend to just go for the hard pieces. I, I, I'm just reaching for something. There are moments, I think, when I'm able to touch them, and, you know, most of the time they elude me because, you know, what, what I want is really so far beyond, you know, what I'm capable of at this age, and yet I do have moments of just being able to touch it. And those are very... Um, those are wonderful moments. That's what I live for. There's the platonic ideal of reflet dans l'eau, the mm. WC. And then there's the reality of how it's going to come through a physical instrument, a physical body, our ears. There's going to be other noise. It's not going to be the heavenly perfection of that piece in its purest imaginable form. So it's the combination of that ideal and the real, you know, that we hear in a performance like that. I know, and it falls short. Oh, but it's beautiful. But you hear, what I hear, I'm hearing something in my own head and I'm not always listening to what's, what I'm really hearing, you know, live. I think that's where, Uh, you know, for me... There's just this separation. You picked a hard one. That piece involves such subtlety. That piece flows like water. It's supposed to. Mm -hmm. Which means you have to be relaxed, right? You have to let this feeling come through you. You can't just... It's not on a metronome. You set the bar very high by picking that piece. (laughs) I did. And it's beautiful. Those chords are so gorgeous. They're amazing chords. He and, was pretty brilliant. And believe me, I, um, I'm saying it's beautiful because I heard you play it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Robert. stand up and clap. <laughs> Thank you. I could sense, you know, okay, so you're wincing a little over there, right? You're, you're picking out a few moments where you just tiny hiccups, right? Mm-hmm. But there's so much that's good there. But you're still, you're still having trouble with it, yeah? 
listening to it? Well, when I make such obvious mistakes, it pains me. Yeah. But you did it. You did it. You performed this concert and you performed another mm-hmm. as you had set out to do. On the very date that you set out to do it, you overcame paralyzing jitters and you did it. And you made music. So if this were a movie, it would be Problem Solved, Monkey Off Back. Right. Uh, hello to a brand new life. Maybe even, maybe even a triumphant concert career. For me, it doesn't work like that. And I don't think stage fright works like that for most musicians, even the great ones. It just is something that you wrestle to the ground every time. And it's just not like, you know, planting your stake on the moon and saying, now I've conquered it and I'll never have another problem with this again. I mean, it just keeps kind of coming up. It's part of the human condition. And um, it's not something that will ever be easy for me. But I am going to continue to do it. I'm planning on playing at the library again um, in a couple months. And I play for, you know, my teacher's recitals and uh, the occasional master class. I think when I first decided to embrace this project, I figured I'd come to the end and it would be the end point and then I would walk away from it. And in fact, the end point was in some way, you know, a beginning for me. And my whole experience, my relationship to music really changed over the course of the year. It was a, a way of bringing back a part of myself that I really had whited out for decades. So life is better in some ways. At least I've reclaimed something, you know, that I had run away from. I feel like I'm in some deep way the same person that I began with. But I have a better understanding of who I am and what I need. You know, my father once said to me that if you really want to understand yourself, you have to try to change something. And so it gave me a much better understanding of who I am. Hmm. Well, now you are off to a book event. Is it your first one? This is my first reading at Bookshop Santa Cruz. Are you nervous? No, actually I'm not. I really like talking to people. I mean, I'll have some butterflies in my stomach. That's normal. But I expect that they'll settle down and um, I will be able to make eye contact and do what I feel I do well. Well, knock them dead, Sarah. Thank you. And you can learn more about Sarah Solovich's new book, Playing Scared, A History and Memoir of Stage Fright, at her website, sarasolo.com. That's spelled S A R A. S-O-L-O dot com, where you can also find Sarah's 12 Steps for Taming, if not exactly curing, stage fright. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com, and uh, you can also listen via all kinds of podcast apps, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many more. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. I hope you join us then. <laughs>